Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. Scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. Mental illness left untreated can have some very dangerous consequences. On February 13th, 1973, a dangerous man was finally arrested for the crimes he committed in his mind to save the entire state from a natural disaster. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Herbert William Mullen was born on April 18, 1947, and raised in Santa Cruz by a World War II veteran father who regaled his son with war stories and was described as strict, but not abusive. While most would describe Herbert's life as pretty idyllic, an adult Herb would comment on how the entirety of his childhood was marred by a conspiracy led by his parents, whom he referred to as, quote, killjoy reincarnationalists claiming his father would threaten to kill anyone who would play with Herb and went as far as to go door to door to tell people to ignore his son. This, however, was all in hindsight as Herb seemed like a happy, well-adjusted child at the time, toting a pretty popular friend group, playing varsity football, 
keeping a steady girlfriend, and being voted most likely to succeed amongst his peers. Little did they know how prolific that title would end up being. Shortly after graduating from San Lorenzo Valley High School, one of Herb's closest friends was killed in a car accident, and as a result, reset the course of Herbert Mullen's life forever. The death devastated the young man, who soon transformed his room into a shrine for his deceased friend, began spending most of his time alone, and became obsessed with the idea of reincarnation, and that his friend's death was part of some grand cosmic plan. The death also caused him to switch his major in college from engineering to philosophy. He began practicing different religions and questioned his sexuality. By 1969, at the age of 21, Herbert let his family commit him to a mental hospital and, over the next few years, would check in and out himself out of various different facilities. He began extinguishing cigarettes on his own skin, attempted and failed to enter the priesthood, and was evicted from his apartment for repeatedly pounding on the floor and screaming at people who were not there. In looking back on his life, FBI profiler Robert K. Ressler would say that Herbert Mullen suffered from paranoid schizophrenia that began manifesting just before his friend died and was accelerated due to the loss and his use of LSD and marijuana. The symptoms then flared up in his early 20s and began consuming his previously normal life. After his release from the state hospital in 1969, Herb began a dishwashing job in South Lake Tahoe, quit soon thereafter, returned to Santa Cruz and was found by a ranger sitting cross-legged in a trance. When he asked Herb to leave, he slowly, while still maintaining his trance, began reaching for a hunting knife at his side. The ranger quickly caught him and took him to a local jail. He was soon released and made his way to San Luis Obispo, where he told his roommate that he was actually receiving messages that were telling him to do unimaginable things. After meditating, he burned off the end of his penis with a lit cigarette in some form of ritual and made a pass at a male friend whose uncle was a psychiatric doctor. He was, once again, committed to a psychiatric hospital and deemed a danger to himself and to others. After his release, Herb met an older woman and, together, the pair made a trip to Hawaii that resulted in yet another committal. He left the premises, still wearing his hospital gown, to try and find a job, and his parents had to pay for his flight home and called the police when his rants got too worrisome. He was released yet again and returned to Santa Cruz, where his mental illness continued to wreak havoc on his mind. He did things like shave his head, go on a macrobiotic diet that caused rapid weight loss, wore a black sombrero and faked a Hispanic accent, tried to become a boxer, preached anti-violence but threw a hatchet against a fireplace when an Asian woman ignored his suggestions that they should have a biracial child together, was ultra-conservative one moment but demanded the legalization of drugs in the next, said he was a conscientious objector but tried to join the Marines, and claimed he was bisexual, biracial, bipolitical, bispiritual, and bicultural. All the while, his parents did their best to try and help him while Herb lived life fully aware that something was wrong but had no way of fixing it. He would later blame his father for almost all of his issues and said he was a mass murderer who commanded him to kill telepathically. But the delusion that Herbert Mullen was most famous for was his belief that he was connected, cosmically, to earthquakes. 
By 1972, a 25-year-old Herb was living back with his parents in Felton, California, and believed that he was hearing voices warning of a disastrous earthquake. Herb's birthday was actually on the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and, believing this was significant, thought that by giving human sacrifices to the earth, California would be spared from another deadly earthquake. He believed that the Vietnam War had produced enough death to stall the quakes for this long, but it was solely up to him to make sure that they stayed at bay. On October 13, 1972, Herbert Mullen beat 55-year-old homeless man, Lawrence Whitey White, to death with a baseball bat after finding him hitchhiking on Highway 9. Herb said that Lawrence, who was actually Jonah from the Bible, telepathically sent him the message, pick me up, throw me over the boat, kill me so that others will be saved. His body was found the next day. 11 days later, 24-year-old Mary Gulfoyle, running late for an interview, was picked up while hitchhiking, stabbed to death, dissected, and scattered all along the hillside road. Her intestines were hanged in a tree branch while Herb examined them for pollution. She wasn't found for several months, and when they were, she wasn't found for several months, and when she was, she was added to the victim list of another prolific serial killer, Edmund Kemper. On November 2, 1972, Herb went to the St. Mary's Catholic Church and confessed his sins to Father Henri Tomei, a French resistance veteran who came to America to become a priest. In his delusional state, Herb believed that the priest was offering to become his next sacrifice, beat, kicked, and stabbed him, leaving him to bleed to death in the confessional. Having no clue what just happened, Herb fled the scene, walked right past a parishioner who was later able to give a good description of the father's killer. After his most recent murder, Herb attempted to join the Marines, but was unable to do so when they found out about his drug use. Blaming a few different people, including hippies, for his most recent rejection, Herb purchased several guns and decided to make Jim Gianera, an old high school friend who sold him marijuana, his newest victim. He arrived at Jim's house on January 25, 1973, only to find that his old friend had moved away and that the cabin was now being occupied by a woman named Kathy Francis. She gave him Jim's new address, where he would kill both Jim and his wife. He then went back to Kathy's home, where he shot and killed her and her two sons, four-year-old Damon Francis and nine-year-old David Hughes. Because Kathy's husband was a drug dealer at the time, the five murders were all written off as having something to do with drug trafficking. A month later, while wandering around Henry Cowell Redwood State Park, Herbert came into contact with four teenage boys, 18-year-old David Allen Olker, 18-year-old Robert Michael Spector, 15-year-old Mark John Drabobliss, and 19-year-old Brian Scott Card, who were camping illegally in the park. He walked over and, pretending to be a park ranger, got into a conversation with the young men before ordering them to leave because they were polluting the forest. They refused and Herb shot each of them before abandoning their bodies to be found a week later. The last murder to take place in the name of the earthquake was on February 13, 1973, when Herb, driving alone on the west side of Santa Cruz, drove by a 72-year-old retired fisherman named Fred Perez, who was out weeding his yard. Herb then made a U-turn, drove back to Fred's home, 
stopped his station wagon and laid his rifle across the hood to take aim at Fred Perez. He killed the man instantly with a single shot to the heart before calmly driving away from the incident. Because he was killed in broad daylight, a number of Fred's neighbors were able to write down Herb's license plate and hand it over to the police. He was captured a few minutes later at an intersection and calmly got into the police car. However, at the police station, Herb became completely uncooperative and would yell, silence, anytime an officer asked him a question. While in custody, he briefly shared an adjoining prison cell with Edmund Kemper, with whom some of his crimes were mistaken for. Edmund accused him of stealing his dump sites. Eventually, Herb confessed to all of his crimes and said that each of them was ordered to prevent the earthquake. And the fact that there hadn't been one as of late was because of the hard work that he had done. He felt especially vindicated when a 5.8 earthquake hit Southern California shortly after his arrest and caused $1 million in damages. He was officially charged with 10 murders and his trial began on July 30th, 1973. His attorneys, of course, argued criminal insanity, while the prosecution noted the fact that he covered his tracks as a sign of premeditation. The arguments continued, and on August 19, 1973, Herbert Mullen was declared guilty of the first-degree murder of Jim Gianera and Kathy Francis because of their premeditation, and second-degree murder for the other eight. The Santa Clara County DA charged him with Henri Tomei's murder and... On December 11, 1973, Herb pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment by Santa Cruz County. Since being in prison, in addition to notable interactions with Edmund Kemper, who used behavior modification treatment on Herbie, Herbert Mullen has been denied parole 10 times and is unlikely to ever be released. He was denied parole again in 2021 and is currently in his mid-70s. In the aftermath of his crimes, it appears that Herb's fellow classmates had been right about voting him most likely to succeed, as he became one of Santa Cruz's most prolific serial killers to date, and in his own mind, was successful in saving California from a natural disaster. Though the word succeed took on a much different and much more terrifying meaning when it came to Herbert William Mullen. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again to hear what terrible thing happened on February 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.